1: Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 234. Love all, trust a few, do wrong to none. William Shakespeare. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, my Indie Film Hustlers, to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's episode is brought to you by Blackbox. Blackbox is a new platform and community that is all about financial freedom for filmmakers like you. If you join Blackbox, you will be transformed from being a worker to being a maker of your own content. And you'll be making steady passive income from the global market. Blackbox currently allows you to upload your stock footage once, get it to many global agencies, and then allows you to share that passive income stream with your collaborators. Whether you want to submit old footage that's been sitting around in your hard drives or create brand new content, Blackbox is for you. It's really quite revolutionary. With Blackbox, filmmakers can concentrate on making great content while Blackbox takes care of all the business BS. Just visit www.blackbox.global to find out more. Today's show is also sponsored by Studio Unknown. Studio Known is a crack team of audio post professionals known for quality sound on any indie budget. Whether you need a lush surround sound mix or a quick festival submission pass, Studio Known can help you with all of your post sound needs, from sound design and mix to fully ADR and even a custom score. Contact Studio Unknown and mention the Indie Film Muscle podcast and you'll get 50% off one day of ADR or 10% off your complete post sound package. Just go to StudioUnknown.com. Well, today, guys, you are in for a treat. I have on the show today legendary film director John Badham. John has made decade-defining features like Saturday Night Fever and 80s blockbusters like War Games, Short Circuit, and Stakeout. And not to mention 90s hits like Bird on a Wire with Mel Gibson, The Hard Way, and Point of No Return, just to name a few. John is also the author of two amazing books on directing called John Badham on Directing and I'll Be in My Trailer, The Creative Wars Between Directors and Actors. And he's also a tenured film professor at Chapman University here in Los Angeles. John is a wealth of knowledge and and experience when it comes to directing and he's been doing it for close to 50 years I know that sounds like a lot, John, I'm sorry. But it's almost five decades of directing and working with actors and telling stories and working at the highest levels of Hollywood. And I I was just such a thrill to sit down and pick John's brain in this episode. So if you guys are interested in directing, this episode is just plum full of knowledge bombs about directing, about storytelling, about working with actors, all sorts of amazing tips. I learned a lot, and I really want to thank John, again, to take out, take time out of his busy schedule to jump on this episode and talk to the tribe. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with
2: John Badham.
1: I'd like to welcome to the show the legendary John Badham. How you doing, sir? Thank you so much for doing the show.
2: Oh, this is great fun to be here. I'm glad to talk to you.
1: You are uh you, you basically were my my youth. I grew up in the 80s and the 90s watching your movies uh and it is an absolute thrill to
2: have you on the show. Well, thank you. I'm having fun being here.
1: All right, so um
2: so first off, how did you get started in the film business? Um I actually was a a, a theater major at uh, at Yale and I was in the Yale Drama School, also,
3: mm-hmm.
2: so um, I got interested in 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 film, and and sort of thought foolishly that I could just show up in California and start to get involved <laughs> in it. You know, I mean, I had a master's degree in directing,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but it was in theater. Sure. And of people would say, "Well, what would you like to do?" I'd say, "I want to direct." Oh, great. What have you directed? Well, plays. Place, get out of here so place, what are that no matter
1: uh, no matter what decades you're you, you were born in there's always naivete <laughs>
2: that's right and and so i you know i hung in there kept looking for a job and finally uh landed something in the mail room at universal and and you know, by then I thought this is a big deal. I actually, <laughs> got a job delivering mail uh, this,
1: on the lot. Of course, I was used to be on the lot.
2: A- absolutely, and I walk in the mail room, and there's twelve guys there, four of them with master's degrees, including me, <laughs> and, and eight eight with bachelor's degrees, <clears throat> and and in the hot California sun summer sun. We're stepping mail up and down the hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, but the idea was that you would kind of find your way out of there. You would find a department on the lot that uh, wanted to train some people.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: it was a busy, busy time at, at Universal where they had 24 hours of television plus all of their movies.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So the, the, the lot was just rocking. Right. Uh, and opportunities were, you know, popping up right and left. I eventually found a home in the casting office as a uh, trainee casting director, and there's that's where I started to work with uh, with real directors and real producers, and and who, who you know listened to me when I started talking about wanting to direct.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, and you got into television first, right? Uh, so I got into television first because I was working with a with a great television producer. Uh, William Sackheim, mm-hmm. who uh, led me start directing uh, small things like literally inserts mm-hmm. close up on the cigar in the ashtray, <laughs> you know, close up on the telephone being dialed, really? uh, but to go from there into actually having real people in the shot and then whole scenes, and and finally when we started a a series called the senator with Hal Holbrook mm-hmm. um he and, and 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 his other producer David Levinson said yes you can direct uh number 7 of this uh, series which was just great i mean uh, you know what an opportunity wow
1: how and many a, and how and how many years were you hustling to get to that opportunity
2: so that i think that's about six years, I think five or six years, mm-hmm. uh, before I got, got to that place. Um, and I thought, Oh my God, it's so late. Oh, I'm just going to be ancient. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, I, thank goodness it worked out all right. And then, uh, that got me another, another, uh, film, which, which actually won me an Emmy nomination, mm-hmm. another episode of the same show. hmm um, and, 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 uh, that, that little stamp of approval, that Emmy nomination that kept me busy for years and years.
1: Yeah. You were doing a lot of, t- uh, what they used to call tele- uh, TV
2: movies or, or movies of the week. Yeah. I, I segued into t- TV movies, which were just all over the place. There had to be oh, there were half a every dozen week. every week.
1: Oh, they were everywhere. Every, <laughs>
2: every was producing them and, and So they were like little movies, Mm -hmm. and and be shot in say 15 days. That was like great, 15 days, because by comparison the hour shows were being shot in six days,
3: right?
2: Uh, And these were only like 30 minutes longer. So you had it was it was you were you were being spoiled. (laughs) So oh my God, this is great, and you got to do you know more interesting stuff and some some action things and. Um and, and and people, you know, may might take you seriously when you start looking for a movie as opposed to having just done our television.
1: Nice. No, so how did you get involved with Saturday Night Fever?
2: I I had gotten to do a movie uh with Richard Pryor and James Earl Jones and Billy D. Williams about the history of Negro baseball mm-hmm. with the unlikely and unwieldy title of the bingo long traveling all stars and motor Kings. Jeez, <laughs> oh, Okay. But it was a comedy uh-huh. and, uh, and was great fun that we shot, uh, in ballparks all over Georgia and, um, uh, and it had a lot of music and, and, and dancing in it. It was a co-production with Motown. Mhm. And universal, uh, and um, that actually led to uh, led led to me uh, ginning up with with Motown to buy the rights to the Broadway musical The Wiz. Okay. And for for Universal and and for Motown. <laughs> And, uh, and so I was working on that with my, with my then partner, Rob Cohen, um, uh, when, when Universal and Motown decided that for, uh, little, little 12 year old Dorothy, we, we should have the noted 12 year old Diana Ross <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> play the part. And I said, guys, I mean, this is a great opportunity she's a fabulous actress, singer, dancer I mean what name it but she's you know whatever age she is I don't know uh, you know late 20s, early 30s uh, probably late 20s
3: mm-hmm.
2: and, and 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 Dorothy you know is in literally in the L Frank Baum books is six years old right which explains why there's cowardly lions and tin men and straw. Mm-hmm. You know, scarecrows, all kind of the imagination of a child. Uh, so wouldn't it be nice if we could find somebody that was really young that could play this? Uh, and if, I'm sure nobody's ever going to have heard of her because we're going to discover her.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, that got into a big thing, and 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 finally, uh. Finally, we parted ways. Right on that, I said, "Well, you guys understand this because I don't know what to say to her." On the <laughs> <stage>. <laughs> how I do you how do you direct the Dorothy who's thirty? <laughs> yeah, this this scares the bejesus out of me. I mean, you've got a vision that uh, doesn't match. Well, uh, it it's uh, happened that the Robert Stigwood organization had uh, were producing Greece. Mm-hmm. And um, and and another musical with the Bee Gees that was going to be called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band.
3: Mm-hmm. I've, and,
2: heard, I've heard of the album, <laughs> and and you've heard of the album. <laughs> yes. And And um, and and they flew me to New York and 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 wanted me to talk with them about doing Sgt. Pepper,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which I there was no greater fan of that album than okay. me.
3: Right.
2: Um uh, but the but the script that they wanted to do I I just didn't get it. Right. I, I was like, "What?" <laughs> uh, it 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 just didn't quite didn't quite gel in my mind and and I as politely as I could, you know, refused uh, you know, and said, "Thank you very much, but I I just I don't get it." Right. And but 2 weeks later uh the the then director of what was called Tribal rights of the new Saturday night uh,
1: <laughs> it doesn't have the same same ring to it, does it <laughs>
2: not quite but if we look at the New York magazine article that it was based on, that was the title
3: uh-huh
2: and and nobody had come up with anything better except for calling it saturday night
3: uh-huh
2: and and that was immediately confused with uh Saturday Night Live. Right. So they said, "Well, we'll just put a pin in it and uh, deal with this later." So um, anyway, the the director of that film had a uh, had a disagreement with Robert Stigwood, who was not a human being to ever be- disagree with,
3: mm-hmm.
2: because he was a tough old Australian. And He wasn't that old either,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, but to me at the time, I think, oh my God, this guy's old. uh he He might be forty years old. <laughs> um, I wish I were forty. Yeah. Um, so uh suddenly, I'm like the next guy to be called on the list and and i I read this script uh and I had a hundred and two fever with from the flu. Mm-hmm. In, in L.A. at the time. And in the, the one hour that it took me to read the script, I was cured. It was like <laughs> Jesus came and laid his hand on me and said, you're cured. Your fever is gone. Your fever is gone because you've read this great script. I, <laughs> it broke your fever. That's great. I'll tell you, it was it was fabulous. And that was a Monday morning by uh, by Thursday morning. I was standing in New York. Uh, starting to interview actors and talk to my new crew and and told that I had uh, two weeks before we start shooting. This is probably where having done all those TV movies of the week and everything mm-hmm. paid off because uh, unlike any normal human being, I didn't fall down and panic and have a heart attack. Right, because you were used to it. Yeah, I go, oh, okay, two weeks, what's the catch? uh
1: so now as far as the casting of of travolta uh, or of john travolta was he he was just the guy on welcome back cotter at that time he hadn't done Greece yet right
2: that's right and he he had been uh already signed to do Greece
3: mm-hmm.
2: um because from the welcome back cotter and from a a tv movie called the boy in the plastic bubble yeah. god i remember that movie too yeah and if I remember properly, I think he was in the Broadway Company of Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he had he had that experience. So the Stigwood Organization signed John to three a three picture deal. Got it. Uh, and Greece was to be you know the big the big one, one to be found. And and then somebody came up with this New York Magazine article and said, how about this? that we could do this while we're waiting to start Greece because they had to wait for Olivia Newton-John Right. had a very tough con- um, concert schedule at the time. And, and she said, well, I've got available from May to September or something like that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So they said, okay, between January and May, when we get Olivia Newton-John, this is where we'll plug in this little movie called called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. <laughs> it was very much
1: almost like an, an indie movie. I know that you did have a budget, but the way it was shot, I remember it, so vividly, was very kind of in the streets and, and kind of gritty, and it was not a polished Hollywood movie by any stretch.
2: No, and 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 it was part of the point was to make it as, as gritty as we could. Uh, I mean, never having been in Brooklyn in my life, uh... I I said, well, what if I were an English documentarian coming here? (laughs) Right. I I would just, you know, open my eyes and shoot everything that looks good. And 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 one of the appeals of the magazine article was the kind of gritty realism of of this disco and the people that that um, that were in it Uh, during the time I was prepping the very brief time. Every every night I would go to some different disco. In the middle of the night, there were yuppie discos, there were gay discos, there were lesbian discos. Mm-hmm. There, you know, any any kind of preference uh, you could think of, there was a disco for it. And and I quickly realized that that this little uh, kind of hole in the wall disco in Brooklyn. Was very special. It was just you know, kind of lower middle class kids were coming there, and uh, you didn't really see any adults. Right. Uh, sure. So and and it was just the neighborhood. It was the neighborhood disco. And I I remember I remember those
1: guys because I grew up in New York, and I remember that time, and I remember you know cousins of mine you know that that couldn't rub two cents together, but when they got their clothes for not, you know, Saturday night, you know, they, they, they were peacocking all over the place.
2: Oh yeah. And, and, and so, so it was clear that, uh, that we didn't want to go and glitch this up. Right. That it was not the kind of, uh, musical that, that say Greece was certainly going to be, mm-hmm. which was much on a different, much more fun, romantic kind of scale. Sure. And, um, And and that this should have a real grittiness to it. And the script itself, you know, had more uh, profane language and racism and sexism and, you know, really reflected the culture of of those neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. uh, which which I would have proven to me every day because I would be talking to people on the street and extras and learn you know learning about the culture as we were going and f- finding out that if anything our our depiction of it was a bit mild. <laughs> wow now
1: now how was it you know obviously when you guys were directing it um, yeah I was I remember we were talking off air about uh, your assistant director Alan Wertheim who was a good friend of mine. He told me a story that uh, I think it was you or someone handed him the soundtrack. To the movie, and he took it home, and he listened to it, and he's like, "This is never going to go anywhere." <laughs> and his wife was the one that told him, "You're an idiot." <laughs> and then, obviously, it became this phenomenon. How? What was it like being in the center of that storm? I mean, because you had directed literally a phenomenon. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere in the world without hearing that music and seeing
2: those images that you shot. Uh, yes, I, I mean the the reaction to to the soundtrack. Uh, Alan's experience wasn't you know wasn't unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, they gave me a you know a, a little tape cassette with the Bee Gees demos on it, which is probably what I gave to Alan. Right, and and they were they were rough demos, um, and I think Paramount had listened to it and said well, this is not even real disco. (laughs) Right. And, and I, and I think others, you know, were, were dubious about it, but Robert Stigwood was a real champion. And he said five songs on this cassette, three of them are number one hits. At least. (laughs) Which I thought, wow, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty arrogant. You know, how do you know what's going to be a number one hit? Right. Uh, he, he was wrong, of course. There, there were four number one hits on there. <laughs> um, and I don't know what happened to the fifth one, but uh, it... It was probably number two. <laughs> it was probably number two. That's, that's right.
1: Now, when you... I mean, but as a director, I mean, we all as directors hope to be involved with a project that gets this kind of attention. What was it like getting the spotlight thrown on you? I'm assuming some opportunities opened up after the movie. <laughs>
2: Yes, of course. Uh, the The first, the Hollywood first reaction was to poo-poo it, of course, because they had just they were just totally shocked by all of the negative parts of it. You know, especially the language and mm-hmm. the sexism. And I actually got fired from a movie the day after uh, we ran it at the big Hollywood screening.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, picture got put in turnaround. Wow. in the morning, uh, I'm going to New York to the New York opening and I get a phone call, you know, telling me that the show I was working on is now in turnaround because the head of the studio uh, saw the movie last night and doesn't want anything to do with a director who would, uh, you know, produce that. Uh Until the box office comes in. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, yeah, the box office came, but they never changed their mind. Uh, okay. Yeah, that uh, movie eventually got made, but not not with me. Sure. Um, so I uh, it. Yes, it was crazy. The opening night uh, in Los Angeles, as I was coming back from New York, uh, I drove by the Village Theater in Westwood just to, you know, take a look, see what the marquee looked like. And and I see a line at the box office. This is about 10.30 at night mm-hmm. that our, our plane got in. And, uh, and I drive around the block, and the line keeps going and going and going, goes all the way around the block of this big theater. And this is for the 12 o'clock show. Wow. wow. And... And I walked into the walked into the lobby and all the Paramount execs were standing in there, grown men jumping up and down like little kids.
1: <laughs> all they saw was dollar signs, of course. And it of course went on to be an
2: extreme huge hit. It did. The the little neighborhood theater near me in Studio City uh had it in their theater for six months. Wow. Back when they, you could do that. You could do that. That was like I mean, we we were kind of following Star Wars in in a lot of markets mm-hmm. and we're replacing Star Wars because uh, I knew that as I was checking theaters that they'd, they'd usually not have a print of of Saturday Night Fever yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, they they would put up, the you know, a reel of Star Wars and I'd look at it and check the sound and so on. Wow. Um now, let me ask you a question.
1: When you approach uh, – how do you approach directing a scene in general? Like when you're going to go into a scene, what is your thought process? What is your, pro- in your process in general?
2: Um, well, it, there's usually about a dozen questions that I, that I have to ask, which is um, what's, what's different? At the, what have we learned? Uh, what's different at the end of the scene from the beginning? Mm -hmm. you know what what were the characters in the scene what did what did they want what does one character want and what does the other character want let's say there's two people in the scene Mm -hmm. Uh, hopefully they're opposed to each other they're not just all agreeing you know there's a there's there's some kind of conflict so i'm always looking for you know where's the conflict in here what's interesting what what in the course of the conflict causes something to change from the beginning to the end of the scene. Um, you know, I ask whose point of view is this scene? Um, is it this character or this character? Uh, you know, are we rooting for, for anybody in particular? Mm-hmm. And then, and then finally I'm asking, okay, these guys have goals. Uh, a guy, a guy wants to take a girl out for coffee. And she doesn't know if she likes this guy or not. So that his goal is to talk her into going for coffee, and her goal is, you know, to kind of politely slide out of it, you know, and, you know, th- there can be a fun scene there, you know, and how does he go about it? Is he, is he aggressive like a, you know, a real macho guy would be, or is he a kind of nerdy guy who's kind of embarrassed, but he's really, Excited about this girl, and he really wants to, you know, take her. So he overcomes his shyness. So, so as you just start to pull it apart, asking these different questions, you you pretty quickly develop a point of view on the scene. Very cool.
1: Now, what do you do when you're not getting the
2: performance you want out of an actor? Um. Well, usually, uh, I I'm trying to help them and say, you know, go and say, now, wh- what are you playing here? What are you trying to get? What's your goal here?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, and usually a lot of the problem is, is that they haven't focused on, on that. Uh, they, they say, well, you know, when I was a kid, my dad used to, you know, yell at me and, and it made me wet my bed. And I said, no, I don't want to hear this. <laughs> I want to know what are you doing right now? Well, I, uh, you know, and I, I, I've got to focus them on what they're trying to do. And, and I, and I'm really tough about making them come up with the answer. Okay. I can go and it's easy for me to go and tell them now, you know, uh, persuade this girl, you know, charm her into going, I can do that. but, The more I can make, I can help an actor come up with stuff themselves, the, you know, the better they're going to be.
1: That makes perfect sense. Um, Now, do you have any advice for dealing with difficult actors or difficult department heads on a set, which I'm sure you've had to deal with at one point or another in your life?
2: Absolutely. Every, every department. Um, And, and, uh. A, a cameraman, let's say, comes up to me and I say, here, here, I, here's the shot I was thinking about doing. And and he goes, well, I don't know. I, I don't I, I don't I don't like that. That shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's. Uh, there's a lot of ways to deal with this, which is, no, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, let's let's make it work that way. And you can get into a big argument or the guy goes, oh, OK, all right, fine, mm-hmm. which is the last time you'll ever get any, you know, good creative contribution from that cameraman. Mm-hmm. And or it's just going to be, a, you know, a war between the two of you for the rest of the shoot. Mm-hmm. I I'd, I'd look at the guy and go, oh, that's interesting. Uh, tell me about it tell me, what what do you think? And he says, well, you know, this, that, and the next thing. He said, oh, great. Tell me more. I had, I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. And even if it's the worst idea in the world, mm-hmm. that's why, you know, saying something like, I never thought of it that way is not judgmental. Uh, it's just kind of letting him exp- expound on it. In the course of that and, and it could work this way with an actor, with a costume designer,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, with an editor. Uh, in the course of that, I'm learning what point of view that that person has on, on what we're talking about. And, and, I'm, and I'm hearing them, and I'm also getting them, giving them a chance to kind of vent
3: mm-hmm.
2: whatever feelings they have. And, and I'm not overriding them. And it doesn't mean that I'm letting them push me over either. Uh, I'm, I'm just I'm just listening and doing what what uh, some people call active listening, um, where you're just kind of feeding. Oh, that's interesting. So you think that that this this uh, shot is into the backlight, and 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 you can't you can't light you can't compensate for that. Yeah, well that's kind of what I was thinking. So. What do you think what do you think we should do? How how would you do it? So with an actor, if an actor says, Well, I think I should be over here and mm-hmm. and I think you should try this, I go, Well, let's try it. My answer to them is usually yes, let's go, let's try it. Because mm-hmm. I know that if I let that person try it, that their sense of professionalism and their creative instincts as an actor, uh, it's going to start to ring alarm bells when it doesn't work, when they try it, when they say, Oh, to be over here. Cause the scenes, scenes have a dramatic logic that it's hard to buck. Right. And, and if you go and you you try some weird adaptation to the scene, it'll tell you, no, this doesn't feel right. But, but the actor having tried it, first of all is, is more willing to try it your way. And, you know, say, well, let's do it both ways or he'll actually realize that it's, you know, that his idea didn't work or miracle of miracles. It's a great idea. (laughs) And only by trying it did you say, oh, my God, I I would have missed an opportunity here. Right. By me. And, And I've had that happen any number of times where an actor comes up with with an idea and I go, oh, no, <laughs> inside my head. Right. I try to follow this little method that I just outlined for you mm-hmm. and go, oh, my God. Oh, oh, that's great. We would have missed something here. Well, thank you, Bill, to the actor. <laughs> thank no. you for that. I mean, there's not a lot you can do, on the other hand, with actors that are, are – you know, showing up, uh, drunk or high or, or just basically unprofessional, completely untalented Mm
3: -hmm.
2: that you, you made a mistake in casting and, um, that's, that's when more radical solutions are called for. Like, you know, can you, can you change, can you change the actor if you can't, how do you, how do you disguise them? You know, hide them behind other people. Shoot over their shoulder, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. too.
1: Yeah, I, there's a, there's little tricks here. Lines away from them. But, but let me ask you something though, and I, I've I've had this happen to me on set, and I'm sure it's happened to you. Not recently, probably, but when you were first starting out, where actors and department heads as well, but uh, more experienced actors will test you. Yes, uh, on the first day to see if they're safe with you. And, they'll right. pu- and the, is that true?
2: Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. And, and how do you I, deal and how do you deal with that? And so I'm, uh, it's, it's tricky cause you know, I'm trying to pay attention. I'm trying to be prepared, but i I'm also trying to be interested in what they're bringing to, to it. If, if I look like I'm paying more attention to the camera and the lenses mm-hmm. than their performance, uh, they're going to register that right away,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, because you get to the end of a scene and call a cut um, and, the, and the camera operator goes, ah, no good. The actor immediately thinks that's about them, that they're no good. Right. Whereas, whereas actually the camera operator saw a coffee cup on the ground in the background and, and it shouldn't have been there. Right. Um, so I'm always... Paying attention to the actor and going over to, uh, I go over to every actor after every take, and 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 just even if it's just pat them on the shoulder or uh, nod my head or thumbs up or say you're on a good path or give them a, a little direction, mm-hmm. they know I'm paying attention because I'm I'm trying to, you know, build some trust. And building trust with, with an actor is, as you say, very difficult. I started 6.30 in the morning going in the makeup trailer saying, you know, good morning to them as they're in the chair and how, how are you thinking about today's work and are there any problems I can help you with? Things, things like that just to start building building trust before we ever get on the stage. It's a lot to do with psychology uh, as well on oh that on that set, <laughs> and that's something they don't teach you at film school. They don't teach you
1: the psychology of the film set.
2: Well, uh, I try to <laughs> uh, where, where I, t- I teach at uh, Chapman. Sure, uh, and that's that's a big part of it, and and um, at, the, at the risk of uh, plugging my own stuff, the, my two books are dealing you know dealing with with. Problematic actors and building trust. Mm-hmm. Oh, great! Uh,
1: what, is, are they, what are the name of the books? Please plug away.
2: Okay. Well, John Bateman directing. Okay. Uh, it wasn't my idea for that title, but okay. <laughs> and 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 my first book, which is called "I'll Be in My Trailer," <laughs> which great is title. something you often hear from. You know, from an actor, you're having an argument with. <laughs> I'll be in my trailer. Call my agent. <laughs> Call my agent. Yes, <laughs> that could be. That could be the sequel.
1: Exactly. Well, we'll make sure to put links to those books in the in the show notes of the of the show. Now, you've worked with. I mean, uh, the over the course of your career, I mean, the the amount of different legends and movie stars and and just uh, talent is is amazing if you look over the scope of your career. How do you direct a movie star? How do you direct a legend? You know, as a younger director coming up, what what do you, or even if, if you're on the same team, like, you know, the, there's different egos involved, there's different personas involved. How do you, how, like, how do you direct a Mel Gibson um, and a Goldie Hawn in Bird on a Wire when both of them were, Arguably, at the peak of their stardom, they were in that area. The peak of their stardom, they were giant movie stars. How do you how do you direct people like that?
2: Well, uh, I I think it's it's hard because because they're intimidating uh, people. They're they're bringing so much experience uh, to to the set and and they, they deserve respect. They've earned the respect and, and, and I think they become your creative partners, mm-hmm. uh, to treat them in any other way. It was a big, big mistake. Um, and we sat with, with Goldie Hawn and with Mel for, uh, quite a while, several times during the preparation of that, of that movie. You know, listening to their thoughts about the, the characters and the scenes and what works, and and both of them are very very smart people mm-hmm. with with good insights. And my my partner Rob Cohen and I, you know, spend a lot of time listening carefully uh, to what they had to say and taking taking advantage of it. Um, it's it's not the kind of thing where it's a one man, a one man show like, um, well, I I, um, can't think of, think of a good example where, where it's all about the director. Orson Welles. Um, (laughs) But, but here, you know, as uh, you know, in many star driven vehicles, uh, you know, you want their chemistry. You want to create a chemistry in, and foster a chemistry between them. And and you're, it's a comedy also, so uh, you're looking for them to come to work in as in as happy and 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 uh, and up a mood as possible because that's going to reflect in all of your scenes. And if people are not happy, that really reflects. I mean, you can tell it. We as an audience can go. There's no chemistry here. Oh, oh my yeah. god.
1: We've seen. I've seen movies like that with big movie stars. You could just tell. Had absolutely no chemistry and had no business being on the screen together or that they hated each other they off- hate
2: each other. yeah they hate each other and you can tell it it just smells from from the screen and
1: it and, and it and it smells the opposite way too when there is that chemistry when there is that enjoyment it spills right off the screen of
2: course now uh, of
1: course now when you, you've directed some uh, just amazing action films in the course of your career. in your opinion, what makes a good action
2: sequence? Well, uh, generally there has to, there has to be something where you're really involved the character the main the main characters have really strong opposing goals, mm-hmm. and you know, something becomes action. When normal conversation just doesn't make it anymore, you you know it's gotten to the point where people have to get into a fight. They have to do a chase. Uh, you know, some words words don't happen anymore. But they're people pressing their goals. And the trick is now, if you're if you're in, let's just say something as simple as a car chase, what are the things that happen during that chase, the different events that happen that start to, to get more and more exciting and build. It can't just be the, uh, the stagecoach comes by and then the Indians are chasing it and they come by. Then the stagecoach comes by, then the Indians come by. Mm -hmm. It's things have to be happening. Uh, the, the Indians have to be trying to stop the stagecoach and, uh, Jumping onto the lead horses to stop it, and the and the the guy up on top of the stagecoach is trying to shoot the guy who jumped on the horses. Right, uh, and so you get through that. Now you got to come up with something that's even bigger, and uh, and it keep it keep a good action sequence alive with with one one event after another. So when you look at the great classic scenes, that my uh, one I'm describing. Is from John Ford's Stagecoach. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can jump ahead to Bullet or The French Connection,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and 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 see. Oh my God, we are so concerned about the jeopardy that Gene Hackman is in chasing this subway train oh. under underneath the L. Mm-hmm. We're frightened to death because we know how scary that is. And, 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 and he's almost hitting other people, but we want him to catch up with the, that subway train that's getting away.
1: And I, and, and I heard it's specific- a brilliant, brilliant sequence. Oh no, I, I, I studied that sequence. And from what I, I've read and heard that they were really driving at like 70 miles an hour during that situation. Like it was a real thing. I mean, I know they had stunt people and stuff like that, but it wasn't like they blocked off blocks and blocks and blocks. I heard that they were like just really driving. And it was, oh, yeah, it, was yeah, getting, yeah. it was very scary.
2: Absolutely it, right. Yeah, they were Bill, Bill Hickman, who was the driver on that, uh, you know, they'd go out at six in the morning and just take off. And, oh, my God, it was terrifying.
1: And that, and you could get it on screen and you got it on and you got it on, on, on film. It was amazing, that sequence. Anyone listening, if you have not seen The French Connection, please. Stop listening to this podcast and go watch The French Connection. <laughs> um, now, what? Um, any advice on working with younger or less experienced casts?
2: Um, it's it's the same whether it's whether it's children or or young young adults. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, with ch- with children, the the biggest trick is casting it right in the first place. Right. I mean, that's that's easy to say, but. If you haven't cast it right in the first place with a child who's got an imagination, who's relaxed, who's not intimidated and who'll listen to you, uh, you're, you're in terrible trouble. Um, but if you've got a child, uh, that hasn't, an, has an imagination, you can almost turn them loose. Right. I, I had a conversation with uh, Robert Mulligan who directed To Kill a Mockingbird mm-hmm. and, and I said how did you deal with these children and, and he said I cast them right in the first place I just kind of put them in situations and, and, and give them a little uh, idea of what was happening in the scene and just let them go um, and, and, and their, their imagination took over um, so Of course he spent, uh, Bob Mulligan and Alan Pakula spent over six months trying to find those children in the first place. Right. You know, they, they looked and looked and looked all over the country. Um, so that's, you know, part of the thing you, it's easy if you can, if you can get Mel Gibson to come and be in your movie, (laughs) uh, or, you know, a, a big star, You know, most of the work is being done for you by that person. Right.
1: Um, So I forgot who said it, but was it casting is 90% of directing or something along those lines?
2: Well, I think it was Elia Kazan Uh who said it. And and my question always was, yeah, now how do you get that other 10%? Can you get (laughs) (laughs) something? Tell us about that thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, I wanted to ask you uh, about one of my favorite movies uh, that you've done, uh, Short Circuit. How did you direct that robot on set? How did that work? I mean, the technical aspects of that must have been, you must have pulled your hair out. Because I'm assuming it didn't work all the time.
2: We had, uh, most, most movie stars have, have some kind of a nice trailer.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Number five had an 18-wheeler <laughs> that was all his. Right, It was filled with different versions of him, big versions, little versions, versions that went left, versions that went right, puppeteered versions, uh, miniature versions to drop off bridges and, and uh, a full time 24 seven special effects crew that kept him running. I mean, he was our uh, star, (laughs) our Eddie Murphy, (laughs) Uh, he, he, he was our comedy guy, the star mm-hmm. and Steve Gutenberg and Ali Sheedy, God bless their hearts, uh, knew that and, and knew <laughs> they took, they knew where their place was in the movie. <laughs> that's okay. You know, we're here to support number five. Uh, and, and I, I made everybody treat him like we had Eddie Murphy. Right. You know, right. I'd go on the set in the morning and when, when the, the guys would bring him out I'd go over and give him, a, give him a hug and start talking to him because we always had one puppeteer sure. that was the voice of number five. And, and so he would be talking back. And, you know, it, it's, it's real easy with, uh, with creatures like that to, to begin to believe they're real
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure when if you're talking to Frank Oz on the set of Empire Strikes Back, I'm. Eventually, you just start looking at Yoda like it's Yoda.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's Yoda, and and um, you know, thank goodness we didn't have uh, any huge mechanical breakdowns because the guys were so worked so hard to make sure he was operating all the time and doing crazy, impossible things like. He looks at a grasshopper in one scene and watches the grasshopper jump, mm-hmm. and then a full size, six foot tall number five starts hopping like a grasshopper.
1: I saw that. And that was before visual, like high end visual effects. Oh, like the, this, is, this
2: is all mechanical. Yeah, visual effects, special effects. Yeah, it was all you know, practical. How, how he flipped a coin like. like. Um, oh, yeah, I remember that. Know, like J- James Cagney. Right a coin and and that was all stuff we had to do for real because there was no cgi right it was all all practical all, um, I mean, you could do simple match shots and and very simple things like put in a sunset or something like sure. that but, but to do what we do today no way not not even
1: close and i remember when that came out that was a monster hit as well that was another big hit
2: when it came out uh i i I loved it.
1: I <laughs> love that movie. Well, one of thank favorites. you. It
2: was... I have I have a, a number five, a small version of number five in my office. I oh, see that's, it. Oh, that's awesome. Um,
1: now, one other movie that you did um, that I wanted to talk to you about, how did you approach directing a remake of a, a, a movie like La Femme Nikita with the movie Point uh, of Point No Return? How, how does a director approach a remake of somebody else's work? And how do you put your own twist on it and be faithful to the original material. I've always wanted to know how you were able to bring it, bring it to life.
2: I so loved La Femme Nikita when I saw it Mm -hmm. and, and it was in a very small theater in Los Angeles. Uh, And, and you know, I, I know that it's often hard to get people to go and see subtitled movies. Mm -hmm. And, And I and I walked out of that and I said to my wife, um, you know, this this would make a great American version. Uh, You know, it's such an amazing story. And and I just don't think, you know, anybody's going to see it because we're seeing it in this nice little theater. But, you know, it was a little multiplex with 14 theaters and it was in the smallest one of the 14. Um, And I think. I think during off hours, the theater doubled as a phone booth. For, for, for <laughs> um, my my brother observed that he'd seen he'd seen more people in the Seven Eleven at three in the morning, right? Uh, then were in this movie theater. So I also said to her, "If I'm thinking of this at the point, this in the theater, somebody else has got this idea, and somebody owns this. I bet." Mm-hmm. Somebody's mm-hmm. already bought this. Sure enough, Warner brothers had bought it for Luc Besson to direct
1: an, Amer- an American version of it,
2: an American version. Okay. And okay. he was going to come over and do an American version of it. And, and I, and I shrugged my shoulders and went, well, too late. I should have been earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and then Luc Besson woke up one day and went, I got other things to do. I, I've already done this. I don't need to do this again. Right, um, and that's somebody. Else. So then they they came to me, and now our goal is how can we do an adaptation uh, of it without making you know with making something that is more American and and uh, fresh and and keep the spirit of it. It's kind of difficult, but that's what we we went to to writers um uh who were character writers not not plot writers mm-hmm. and um and, and that and I thought it's all going to be about her character and and how that how that works for us because we've got a very strong story here we don't need more plot what we need is people you know characters that that we can identify with And that was that was our approach, Um, and um, and it came up with the idea of of using for the soundtrack using Nina Simone Mm -hmm. as um, as a touchstone for her, Uh, that that uh, her songs and her kind of female rebellion uh, that Nina Simone sang about. Was, was something that would, that would be interesting in helping, you know, helping this character. Um, so
1: you actually brought it to life because of your love for
2: it. Right. That, yeah. And, and I, I lobbied hard, you know, to get that, to get that job uh, because I, I, I did really, really love it and, and loved the character and loved all the characters.
1: It was such a great story. It was such a unique, fresh a story when it came out it was uh, it was monumental but luke and luke is an amazing director as well
2: absolutely absolutely i mean his his. time i'm a big big fan of his and 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 i'm sure i was vilified in france <laughs> for having you know how dare you how dare you touch this how dare how dare i touch it and 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 I just I just told the French press I said well please talk to Luc Besson he's the guy that sold it to us <laughs> exactly Luke's the one that yeah. sold it <laughs> we, we we just went and and uh, very politely asked uh, you know you know can we make a version of this and he said sure <laughs>
1: <laughs> now um, I have a couple questions left um, out of all the films that you uh, have made do you have a favorite one.
2: Well it's it's hard to say because there's good things and bad things in 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 everything and you know I think about the good things and then wince at the bad ones and the mis- mistakes <laughs> and things that I could have Don't we all done, done better and sometimes it takes 25 or 30 years before I go oh no I just figured out how to do that <laughs> <laughs> Now
1: all right so um you now teach at Chapman uh, University. What is the biggest lesson you try to teach your students?
2: That it's not about the equipment. It's about the human beings. It's not about the th- kind of fancy camera moves that it's easy to learn how to, how to do. It's about what, what is going on with the characters here. What's the story? If you don't get that right, then all the rest matters for nothing. Uh, with, with young, with young directors, um, the, the first thing you can learn, the easiest thing to learn is how the equipment works right. and, and, and you can get it in your hands and it'll pretty much do what you want it to do. Uh, human beings on the other hand are a <laughs> booger. Uh, yeah, they, they don't, they don't do what you want them to do. They're ideas. And, um, and they have they have creative thoughts and and you have to learn how to deal with that and that that frightens uh young directors no end and a lot of our our job is trying to teach them how to work with actors and and uh, you know learning how to how to get the best performance out of them in in addition to uh you know how how to work with with screenwriters Mm -hmm. and and um you know make make stories work as well as they they can they can do
1: now what advice would you give a filmmaker wanting to break into the business today
2: is there something else that you'd like to do (laughs) why for god's sakes why (laughs) why would you want to do this I mean, um, I have I have a class of 23 students right now mm-hmm. who are all shooting their first short five minute films. OK. And uh, and, and they're start, they're starting to learn a lot of the the difficult parts of filmmaking that have nothing to do with filmmaking,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, getting getting permits, finding actors, um, budget. All kinds of things that they, you know, you don't think about when you're thinking about, you know, glamorous filmmaking, but they're having, they're having to learn. It's a, it's a very tough upward, uh, uh, struggle as, as you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that almost has an automatic self sorting, uh, factor to it where people start dropping by the wayside when they go, I don't have the energy or the, I don't care about it enough to do it, or I'm not very good at this. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we find people uh, thinking they want to direct and then realizing they don't like interfacing with, with human beings as much, but they love putting the film together or right. they love shooting, uh, you know, being a cinematographer. Right. So they find other things that they, that they really enjoy doing. And and that they're good at and and they and they can make a make a career there because God knows we have enough opportunities now with all of the television networks and channels and cable channels. Oh, yes. It's so uh, insane. (laughs) So great compared to, say, television of 20 years ago when you had four networks. And and that was it. That was the only place you could go. But now, gosh, all over the place. So there is opportunity, which is fabulous. And for those who are, you know, making good films in film school, you know, they'll they'll get to break through. The cream does rise to the top, as they say. Abs- absolutely. And and if you are, you know, nowadays, if if you're talented and let's say you're in a minority group or you're a woman you you've got a leg up it's a great time for them because people are taking their uh, them much more seriously and 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 they're getting many more opportunities right uh, my my uh, I had a manager a talent manager come to one of my classes to talk to them about it and and he looked around the class of uh, twelve people, mm-hmm. and he said, "I can tell you who's going to be the big uh, talents in this in this room right now."
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I've only been in this room for five minutes,
3: mm-hmm. and he
2: points to the two women.
3: <laughs> and he said, true. "I'm
2: not joking." He said, that, "You know, you guys, you guys would, you know, this is great. You're going to get an extra an extra little break here. That's awesome, and That's awesome. and a long long overdue too." Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Oh my gosh.
2: (laughs) It's a tough question. I I think I'm still learning it, so I don't know what it is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, And then three of your favorite films of all time.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, No Country for Old Men. What a great movie. Oh, love that movie. Citizen Kane, uh uh-huh. huh? Huh? Yeah. What? Yeah, uh-huh. I've heard, I've heard of it. Yes, you've fair. heard, of, you've heard, you've heard of it. I've seen it many times. It's a wonderful film. Uh, and The Godfather, number number one or number two? Can
1: I lump them together? You, you literally, another person, another guest did the exact same thing. I'm like, I'm just going to lump one and two together because they're the same movie. They're together. Uh, this they should be.
2: <laughs> so absolutely, John. These are, these are movies. These are movies that have the. I'm only going to watch a scene test, mm-hmm. which is you're flipping through the channels and and you come across something a scene on on uh, Godfather Two and you say oh, I'm only going to watch a scene. Three hours later, you realize you've watched <laughs> both versions. Yes. Yes, it
1: definitely has that. It definitely passes that test, John. I want to thank you so so much for being on the show and sharing your knowledge and experience with the uh, with the indie film hustle tribe. I really truly
2: appreciate it. It's been an honor. Oh uh, well, thank you. It's fun to talk to you. It's a good makes me think. <laughs> Thanks, my friend. All right.
1: As promised, John dropped some major knowledge bombs on the tribe today. So, John, again, thank you so so much for being on the show. It was an absolute honor uh, speaking to you, my friend. And if you want links to any of his books or some amazing videos that I have in the show notes, head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 234. And you can also see John's demo reel so you can get an example of what a demo reel for a director working today in television and feature films looks like, as well as links to his books. And I put a little bonus episode there from YouTube on uh, him sitting down talking about his book on directing, which is about 30 minutes of just amazing knowledge bombs as well. And if you guys haven't done it yet, head over to screenwritingpodcast.com and please subscribe to my new podcast focusing on the craft and business of screenwriting, the Bulletproof Screenplay. Now, also, I know a lot of you guys have been emailing me and messaging me about ego and desire. You guys want to know when the movie's coming out, what's going on with it. I really haven't spoken a whole hell of a lot about it. Um, And there's reasons for all of that, guys. But I have some stuff up my sleeve. And you know when I have stuff up my sleeve, generally that's good news for you guys. So there's going to be a lot more of ego and desire coming up shortly, hopefully in the next few months. Uh, A lot more information and a lot more Uh, Content uh, that I'm going to be creating for you guys so that I can hopefully inspire you to go out and make your own movies. So, as always, keep that hustle going, keep that dream alive, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.